Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see each of you here this morning. John chapter 13. And I want to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 11. So John 13, uh, down th- verse 1 down through verse 11. Here's what the text says. It says it was just before the Passover festival. And I want to make just one comment as I say that. This is the third time in the Gospel of John that you're going to find mention of the disciples and Jesus being in Jerusalem for a Passover festival. Okay? John chapter 2, he's there when he creates the wine, right? You remember that. John chapter 6 and 7, there's another journey. John chapter 12 or, and 13 are the beginning of the last Passover. Okay, so if you, this is an annual festival in Judaism. So this is the third year of Christ's ministry, and it's drawing to the conclusion of the third year of Christ's ministry, which means that the cross of Christ is eminent. Okay, it is at the door. And so the text says it's just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world, literally meaning to die, and to go to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he's absolutely confident that he will face death, be delivered from it, and go back to his Father. So, in light of that truth, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He said to Simon Peter, I'm sorry, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said, not every one of you is clean. You know, there's a text that sits in the background of this account, and you don't have to turn there, but I just want to bring it to your attention. It's a a text that relates to this exact time frame, perhaps to this same evening. Luke, the writer of another gospel, is is looking at this episode, this event, from a slightly different perspective. What he does is he records that there was a dispute amongst the disciples at this dinner. Here's the topic. Which one of us is greater? And there was a debate about prominence, a debate about importance, a debate about effectiveness in ministry. Sad, but true. But true. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise, exercise authority over them call themselves the benefiters. 
but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table in tradition? And then Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. So in that dinner, with that discussion about greatness, prominence, most effective, hanging in the background, this story occurs. The other important background of the story is what it says in verse 1. Jesus knew that the hour, and the hour for Christ, is the aim of his coming. He came for a specific purpose, and he knew that the time for that purpose to be fulfilled had come. Now, if you remember back to John 2 that we spoke about a few weeks ago, in John 2, Mary came to Jesus and said, Jesus, do this miracle. Meet this need. He looked at her and said, woman, my hour has not yet come. The time for me to go fully public with my identity and purpose. Here, you find that three years have passed, and the time for Christ to go public in terms of ministry has come. So here, here's the question I want you to think about. When Jesus says, my hour has come, he knows that his hour has come, what is he referring to? I think he's referring specifically to the aim and purpose of his life. The reason for which God had sent the Son into the world. And in Mark 10, 45, Jesus makes it undeniably clear why he was on planet Earth. Mark 10, 45 says this. It says, for the Son of Man, which is the exalted name of Christ, did not come to be served, but to serve. How, Lord? Now, I want you to get this connection because it's critical to the rest of the sermon. Okay? The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve by, which tells us how he serves, giving his life a ransom for many. And folks, here's what that means. Everything in the life of Jesus, every act of service in the life of Jesus, was ultimately in service to this final aim, purpose, and objective. And it is that people could experience freedom and deliverance from their sin by the blood of Christ. Okay, that truth, that purpose, that aim surrounds everything that Jesus does and should surround everything, every act of service that you and I participate in. Now you notice what the rest of the verse says. He knew that his hour had come Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is a fascinating statement. He loved them to the point of perfection. Literally, I think it means something like this. He loved them in the uttermost way or to the cross, to the purpose of his hour. Okay? So when you, when you read this text, Christ has, has set his eye on the cross in a way that he will not be deterred from, in spite of all the events that are swirling around him. Verses 2 through 5 is where Jesus illustrates this complete love for his disciples in a small way that pictures a bigger way. So the foot washing cleansing is indicative of a greater need of cleansing that is coming. Okay? So in 2 through 5, he illustrates the truth. And here's the way that it works. In the ancient world, people walked on streets that had a lot of stuff on them. Okay? There are a lot of other words I could use. Okay? But... Excrement from animals, garbage, dust, dirt. Streets were not clean places. And so as people would travel from place to place, in this case, 
the disciples have traveled with Jesus to something called the Passover meal. Okay, in that journey in the ancient world, you didn't have boots that were tied up. You couldn't buy ankle highs. You had sandals. You didn't wear socks because that would not be an appropriate style statement, okay, to wear socks with sandals. So they wore sandals. What happened? All of the filth of the road got on them. And when they were reclined to eat, they were in proximity to one another's feet. So it was customary that when you went in a house, there would be someone there who would do the washing of feet. It was the lowest task that a slave could have. It was to say that I am the very least in terms of importance. And so the disciples sit down to this meal. No servants are present, and no disciples offer to wash feet because it was, in terms of custom, beneath or below them. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus dramatizes the truth of what the cross is going to represent for all. He got up from the table and became the king, the son of man who serves. Here's what the text says. It says he took off his outer garment. He tied a towel around him, which was to take on the attire of a slave. He's acting out a picture for his disciples while actually doing something for their benefit that they could not imagine doing for each other. Okay, and that's a key part of the story. Jesus, in this dramatization, becomes the king who serves, and he begins to pour water into a basin and wash the feet of his disciples, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So the picture becomes that the one who is washing the feet is taking the defilement from them and putting it on his attire. That's just a simple picture. You can move in different directions with that. The text doesn't say a lot about it, but it's what was happening. So that's the truth now illustrated. Apparently, he's washed the feet of a number of disciples. Then he comes to Peter. And now we find the truth of this story explained. Peter is the one who, if I could say it this way, he thinks out loud. Okay? I have a sister that thinks out loud, which makes her a lot of fun to be around. Okay? She doesn't have a filter. Okay? She just has thoughts. And they all pop out. Okay, that's Peter. Peter is not characterized as malicious. Okay, a lot of times, well, he's kind of the stupid one who speaks too fast. No, Peter is deeply and genuinely concerned, and in most circumstances, he cannot restrain his passion to know or to express himself. And in this account, you find something happened to Peter. The the thought of all the disciples is how fundamentally inappropriate is it that the king of kings would take the role of the lowest and wash our feet. Peter's watching one, and then another, and then another. We don't know how many of the twelve, but when he gets to Peter, Peter's like, this is scandalous. This can't happen. And notice what he says. He came to Simon Peter, verse 6, a representative, I believe, of the whole group. They're all thinking it. None of them has the courage to say it. And Peter said to him, Lord, do you think I'm going to let you wash my feet? And you get the picture in the story of Peter is drawing his feet to himself. He's, he's repulsed and scandalized. That's the idea. He's scandalized by the thought that the king of the universe would wash his feet. What that does tell you 
is that Jesus is growing in an understanding of who Jesus is in a deeper way than the rest of the apostles. Okay, and so as, the, as Jesus comes to him, he, he, he recoils. Jesus' response in verse 7 is fascinating and instructive. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing. Peter, I get what you're saying. And I know that the act that I am performing is in fact scandalous and utterly inappropriate by the custom of the age. A master, a teacher who has disciples would never wash their feet, nor would the disciples contemplate washing one another's feet. Do you see? So he's saying, Peter, you're right. It is a scandal. It is, it is a twisting of, of custom. But it is an essential act that I must power out on you. He says this to Peter. Listen to what he says. He says, Peter, you do not realize what I am doing now. But later you will understand. Peter, one day you'll look back on this and you will thank me. Now, the question becomes, how would Peter know that? He's going to know, number one, by the fact that when the crucifixion of Jesus Christ occurs, that full redemption and full cleansing is made fully available for the worst of sinners through the blood of Christ. So that he'll know that there is an ultimate cleansing. But I think the other hint in the text is John 14 to 16. You see, in John 14 to 16, Jesus says, and it's at this same discussion... Because this discussion runs from chapter 12 through chapter 17. It's called uh, the Last Supper Discourse or the Upper Room Discourse. Christ is going to teach them for five, six chapters. And he says, Peter, the Spirit of God is going to come into your heart. And when he comes into your heart, the lights are going to go on. And truth that you could not understand apart from the Spirit will become true for you. Okay, that's the promise that I think is going to... So that's why Jesus said, Peter, I know you don't get it now, buddy. But later, you're going to understand what all of this means. Peter's a little bit difficult. <laughs> what does he say? He said, so he moves from resisting to prohibiting. Okay? So in verse, verse, in verse 8, he says, No, you shall never wash my feet. So first, a rejection. Secondly, it can't happen. And then Jesus kind of comes down on Peter with a little strength. Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Simon Peter replied, there's something that clicks in his mind. Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well, which is to say what? Wash all of me, Lord. And Jesus answers and says, those who have had a bath, Peter, need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And listen to this. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Peter says, wash all of me. Jesus says, you are already clean. You, by virtue of faith in me, have already experienced an ultimate cleansing. But sometimes in the process of living life, you pick up defilement. You pick up sinful tendencies. You pick up selfishness. And it needs to be washed off of you. I'll give you an illustration of what I think is going on here. There's a total cleansing and then the need for repeated cleansing. So the foot washing is the need for perpetual cleansing from Christ. Because as I live my life as a believer, I am imperfect and always in need of God's grace. Peter is resisting the effort of Christ to bring him to a place of full purity. 
probably thinking somewhat religiously, I got this. I can take care of that. And Jesus says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. If you've ever been in the bathroom of a restaurant, you'll see a sign that says, wash your hands before returning to work. And you should all say, I'm so grateful that's there. Okay? The sign does not say, before you go back to work, you need to take a shower. Why? Because the assumption is that you came to work clean, and in certain affairs, you need a repeated cleansing. It's a partial cleansing. Okay, and that becomes a picture of how the Christian life works, right? Jesus says, you are clean. Peter, you, by virtue of faith in me, have become a son of God. You are completely forgiven. And along the way, you're going to need treatments of cleansing. Never assume, Peter, that your status with God is a result of your effort. What does Peter not get? Here's what I think happens. I think we come to faith in Christ. We understand that salvation is holy of God. But then once we become Christians, we become a little religious. Okay? Religious meaning... God has done his part for me, so Jesus does his bit, his part of my life, and then I have to do mine, and together we equal everything that God wants. And I think Jesus wants Peter to understand that, Peter, you make no contribution to your right standing with God. All you can offer God is a humble heart that has been broken by his amazing grace and an acknowledgement on a daily basis that I get dirty, I get defiled, I get polluted in the world I live in. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us. Listen to what it says. And then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So folks, I can be a forgiven child of God who has sin in my life. I don't need a full bath again. I don't need to be, be, to be reborn again. I need some cleansing. And here's what Peter, Jesus is saying. Peter, you need the cleansing from me as well as the full bath. Okay, does that make sense? There's a picture here. Jesus isn't just doing this so that he can feel good about himself, that he wasn't selfish today. He actually helped someone out. He wants Peter to know there is a much bigger dynamic at play on behalf of sinners. That the one who will cleanse you from your sin is the one who has totally forgiven you from it. And he wants that truth emphasized so he can say, Peter, you're clean, you're mine. But sometimes... You get stuff on you, Peter. Sometimes you argue about who's the most important. And you need that off of you. I need to cleanse you. And Peter says, oh no, never. And then what does he say? After Christ clarifies, he's like, Lord, all of me, my head, my hands, my feet. Which is a picture of your entire body. Okay, isn't that beautiful? Peter has the same tendencies that all of us have. Peter has the same tendencies that every religious system has. It's the attraction of religion. I just need time to get my act together. And if I go broad by keeping rules, by observing certain festivals, by wearing certain undergarments, by attending certain festivals, by making certain pilgrimages, and I'm trying to cover a vast array of world religions, by all those activities, every world religion says that your status with God is achieved by your effort. And the gospel says, rubbish. Rubbish. 
your standing with God and your cleansing by God are owing only and fully to the grace of God in Christ. And I hope that truth can can get into our hearts and minds. You are clean. You need cleansing. Now, here's the most sobering verse in this text, verse 11. Jesus says, not all of you are clean. Folks, I want to say something to you. Coming into a church building will not change your eternal destiny. Judas was with Christ, was taught by Christ, follow me, saw the miracles of Christ, and was not clean. Okay? It is possible to be in the context of church life and never have experienced the ultimate cleansing of Jesus. And to me, that is a tragedy of worth proportion. To know what Christ could do, to see it, but not believe it, own it by faith, and experiencing transformation and then cleansing. But I want you to know that that is a real possibility. The Bible tells us that Judas is lost forever, separated from God's presence in hell, because he would not believe the truth that could change his life. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I, I just say this to you. Come to Jesus. Be forgiven. And be made clean. Let him do in your life the work that he aims to do. Verses 12 through 17 then give us the application of this story. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And just listen to this. He returned to his place. He didn't usurp his place. He didn't take his place. It was rightfully his. To sit in the place of honor at the table was right for Christ. Does that make sense? He, he, he assumed his place. And Peter's like, I feel so much better with you sitting there than washing my feet. But Jesus had washed their feet for a reason. He had taken on this attitude of utter humility, became in the form of a servant for a purpose. He returned to his place, and then he uses this word again. Do you understand what I have done for you? Do you get the picture? And he goes on just in very beautiful ways, very simple and clear. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. I am above you. I am in an exalted position as the Son of God. That is an absolutely correct analysis, for that is what I am. And then he drives it home. He says, now that your Lord and teacher, I, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. You should humbly cast off all pride, all position, even if it's held humbly. When there is a need around you, you should put all that aside and meet that need. And every time you do, you can be mistaken for Jesus. Jesus says in this, I have left you an example that you would do as I have done. And notice how strong this is. He says, now that I, your Lord, verse 14, and teacher have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Do you see? Folks, listen. There are many times that people admire Jesus. I mean, like, oh, that... 
Very seldom will you find people who just hate Jesus. If they read enough of what Jesus says, they may have a change of opinion. But most people stay on the surface. They have a fondness for Jesus. They admire Jesus. Jesus did not come to be admired. He didn't come to set up a museum about his life. He came to be imitated in the life of every believer. He didn't come to be imitated so you could earn your way to a place with God. He came to show you how to live once you know him. So may God help us not simply to admire, but to trust, to believe, to own Christ as Savior and Lord in our very heart. In this text, foot washing is simply an illustration that was culturally understood. It was an illustration of selfless service. We don't do foot washing today, but we have opportunities to serve one another in the same way that Jesus is talking about here. And I want to encourage you as a church family to get on board with this idea of imitating Jesus. But it's going to take something called humility. And that's why verse 16, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What is the point of verse 16? It's an argument from greater to lesser. If the teacher served then the student should do what? Right? And if the teacher humbled himself, then the student should do the same. Okay? So if the greater one was willing to make that journey down, it's nothing for you. That's the argument. Okay? So that helps us to understand what is happening. It takes humility. It takes self-effacing. It takes sacrifice. To give up status, to give up position, and to humbly walk in the sandals of a servant. We think so much of ourselves in our culture that we have very little time and room to meet the needs of others. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, the humility of Christ is not thinking less of yourself. Meaning, it's not demean yourself, get yourself down to a servant, grovel, and then serve. No, it's just think less about yourself. Don't think less of who you are in Christ. Magnify who you are in Christ. But think less of yourself, meaning take time to fix your eyes on the needs of others. That's the mind of Christ in Philippians 2 and verse 5. A healthy church is a place where needs are sensed and needs are met. We have a thankfully, a good bit of that in our church family. A lot of people who are devoted to serving one another, to meeting one another's needs, to getting involved. Folks, that's what makes a healthy church. A healthy church is not where the pastors are incredibly busy meeting the needs of others. A healthy church is where every person in the body of Christ sees that they're gifted by the Spirit of God to make a difference in the life of someone else. And they can humble themselves to reach out to anyone. Folks, it The best thing in the world is to be in a church where there are no unmet needs. Because people are living in community, aware of each other's lives, and moving into one another's lives in a Christ-like fashion to wash each other's feet. In spite of who they are, and in spite of your position in the context of an organization. May God raise up in this church an army of unseen, unnamed, untitled people who look a lot like Jesus.
three concluding observations, and I just I'll just draw this to a close. Verse 17 to me is it, it it's an amazing statement from Jesus. He says, now, in the midst of the argument over who's greatest, in the midst of the illustration of what it is to be greatest, the one who serves, Jesus says, verse 17, now that you know these things, okay, now watch the transformation. Now that you know it, you will be blessed if you do it. Okay, folks, listen to me. There's a difference between knowing I should serve others and serving others. And you're all thinking, all right, Pastor Tim, that was brilliant. Okay? I'm actually quoting from James chapter 1. And I think James, who sat at this dinner, knew that we have a tendency to know that we should serve others and we should be humble, but to never enjoy the blessed life that God has for every one of his children. James 1.22 says this, Do not merely listen to the word. Do what it says. The one who looks into the perfect law, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, and does what it says, makes appropriate adjustments, loves God and loves his neighbor, that person will be blessed in all that he or she does. So what is that text doing? And what is John 13, 17 doing? Jesus says, if you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. You know what he's saying? He's saying it is legal to pursue in the context of Christianity happiness. It is legal to pursue well-being and joy. It's just that you don't get it by making yourself the center of attention. You get it by serving others. That's the thrust of this text. The blessed life, to have the favor of God. That's literally what it means to be blessed. To have God's favor. That's promised to everyone who selflessly serves others and puts God's word into practice. So I challenge you this morning. I want you to think about your life. I want you to honestly ask yourself, when's the last time, just think, when is the last time that you got outside of you and yours and helped them and theirs? I just want you to think. When's the last time that my day was altered by the need of someone in my sphere of influence? Because you should be able to remember. May God help us to break off the, the bondage of selfishness that makes us self-absorbed. And may we begin to serve others. Because I think this is one of the crying needs of the Church of Christ today. The practice of humility blesses you and everyone around you. It means you become the object of his favor. It's stated here, it's stated in James 1. I'm going to encourage you this morning to start in your workplace. If you have people that are in subordination to you, that function under you, you're there. I don't like the word boss, but you understand what I'm saying. Are you serving them? If you're a student, start in your school. If you're more attractive and more talented than students around you, who are you helping? Mom and dad, start in your home. Selflessly and relentlessly serve one another. Start in your neighborhood. Don't drive past a need. Stop and say, can I help you? 
you're going to get a really weird look. No, never. <laughs> but do it. Start to unleash this example of Jesus. So the practice of humility will bless your life, bring you to a sense of fullness. Let it penetrate your life. Love people like Jesus loved the 12 disciples, and they were no prize. But he loved them anyhow. May God help us to do the same. Second concluding thought is this. Humble, selfless service is in fact proclaiming. Later in this chapter, John 13, verse 34, Jesus says this. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So here's the very simple truth. Selfless service, humble, is in fact proclaiming. All Christian service is to be driven by the gospel of Christ. It is to be gospel-infused. Everything that Jesus did was guided by and was in service to his hour. Everything put in that direction. Why? Because the life of Jesus, if he did a miracle for you, it didn't change your eternal destiny. It attracted attention to Jesus, who you will then learn dies on the cross to pay the price for your sin. He didn't come to meet temporary needs. He came to make an eternal difference in people's lives. Everything he did was guided by and was in service to that hour. And his mission, the goals of it, the aim of it, the purpose of it, must be our purpose in all service. I recently drove past a church, and I'm not going to say where it is because it's irrelevant. His church has, I'm going to say their signs, probably the size of, of that projection. And on it are verses, quotes from Jesus. Okay? You may have seen this. As I drove past it, I, I will tell you this. I admire the boldness. I grew up in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, near Lancaster. There's a lot of Mennonite folks that live there. You know what they do? They'll often put verses on, bill, literally by billboards on Route 476 heading towards Philadelphia, proclaiming the gospel. Okay, I'm not, please understand what I'm saying. Okay, when I go through it by that, I thank God for that. Let God use that. But here's the question that comes to my mind. In a skeptical world, I wonder if that's the best approach. Okay, and here's what I'm going to say. If I buy the billboard, but I don't get involved in people's lives, here's what happens. I proclaim the truth, but I never authenticate it with my life. My life doesn't make it attractive, compelling, beautiful, believable. Because it's separated from me. Okay, so here's what I believe should happen. I believe that we should get involved in service towards the body of Christ, in service in our community, to make a proclamation, to make Jesus take on skin in our lives. And as attraction is brought to ourselves, we point not to ourselves, but to Jesus. Okay? So all effective service is going to have that kind of, that kind of aim. The problem on a billboard is not with the verse. The problem is that the person can't see the truth authenticated in someone's life. People need to see the truth. And if everyone in this building this morning went out as a representative of Jesus this week and sought opportunities to selfless serve in the name of Jesus, actually, not assumed, but do it in Jesus' name, we would change our community.
we would change our community. May God help us to connect our mission, our efforts to the gospel because Jesus relentlessly did that. And then he says to us, what you saw me do, do it. I quote the vision of CareNet Center because they boldly state this purpose. CareNet envisions a culture where women and men faced with pregnancy decisions are transformed by the gospel of Christ and empowered to choose life for their unborn children and abundant life for their families. The gospel is out front. And it should be in everything we do as the body of Christ. And the last thing I want to say is, as I just, I'll just bring this to this third concluding thought. In verse 10, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you are clean. You have a status before God. I am naming you the rock prior to your imminent failure. Okay, and I want you to see that. Prior to Peter's failure, Jesus is calling him the rock. You're going to make a substantial difference, Peter, in the church, not because of you, but because of my relationship with you. Folks, we need to understand that Satan desires and longs to sideline us, to bind us in shame and feeling dirty and feeling like we need cleansing. Jesus came to set us free from that, to give us a new identity as a child of God, clean, alive, unburdened, and free. If you know Christ and you've been sidelined by sin and frustration and defilement, I want you to understand that you are not defined by your past sins and by your failures, nor by what has been done to you. You may feel dirty, you may feel ashamed, you may feel defiled, but Jesus says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Today, maybe what you need to do as a child of God forgiven is to experience today a fresh cleansing from God. That is pictured, I believe, in the work that Jesus does here. You are forgiven and can be cleansed daily. Failures are not indelible if you're in Jesus Christ. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All. All. There is nothing that can attach itself to a child of God that can't be forgiven by the blood of Christ. Peter, you're clean. You're clean. You have a new status. You have a new name. Own your identity. You've been forgiven. Set free. Live in that truth and go and emulate my life. Remember who you are. And remember and remember whose you are. Hope is not found in serving others. It doesn't change me. It may make me feel better, but it doesn't change me. Hope is found in the work of Christ. Guilt and shame and wounding humiliate, bind, and paralyze. The gospel humbles. Do you understand the difference? Sin humiliates you. Satan wants to humiliate you because when you're humiliated, you walk away and you hide just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. In this text, Jesus is bringing cleansing to the disciples. He wants them to know their identity so that they will not be humiliated, but that they will be humbled by the work of Christ and then free to serve. Here's my concluding statement. The gospel rightly understood that I am forgiven by the grace of God in Christ as a free gift. I am brought into his family. I am made a child of God. I am a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. That's my new identity. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. It's a gift that God has given to me. 
And when I rightly understand the gospel, it humbles my heart, frees me from shame, and frees me to serve like nothing else. So folks, all of our service, gospel-saturated because it's what drives everything we do. And when it's rightly understood, it will never humiliate. It will humble me. And it will give me a testimony that says Jesus Christ can change your life dramatically. And we move into the world around us to serve, not so we can feel good, not to meet temporary needs, but so that people can know that the one that they admire is much more than someone to admire. He is a Savior who came for an hour, and in that hour, he bore the full price of your sin on Calvary's cross so that by faith alone and grace alone, you could be forgiven and set free. God, let all of our service be driven by this. In a moment, I'll pray. As we leave today, uh, you're going to find out in the foyer there are booths set up. There are opportunities to get involved and to serve like Jesus in your church and in the context of your community. We want you to become familiar with ministry leaders. A lot of times people say, well, I know there's this ministry, but I don't know who's in charge of it. That's why we're doing this little bit of what we're calling a ministry fair. It's an opportunity for you to meet leaders in ministries, to find out various ways to get involved. We hope that you will find a place to serve at the chapel. And sometimes it'll be official. It'll be something that's acknowledged, recognized. It'll be, a name will be on a list, something like that. But most of the work that changes the church, folks, is done by the unnamed. It's done by the untitled. What makes a church strong is concern for one another that's lived out on a daily basis. That is transformational. That is what it is to be the family of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who does not know Jesus, the one who ultimately served by giving his life as a freedom price for them from their sin. I pray, God, today that you would give them the capacity by the Spirit to believe and trust in the name of Jesus. I pray, God, that this morning you would make their heart alive, that you would quicken their heart so they can know that in Christ they are clean, forgiven, and cleansed on a daily basis as we confess our sin. Oh God, I pray that for those who are with us today who do not know Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who are your children, would you free us from the enslaving bondage of guilt and shame, resulting from things done to us and things done by us? Would you allow us, Lord Jesus, to come to you this morning confessing our sin and finding cleansing from all our sin and all unrighteousness so that we can be servants and vessels that are fit for the Master's use. God, let us move into our church family with the humble heart of a servant, willing to put aside all status to serve and minister to others. And God, let us move into our community with a heart to serve and with a message that can change lives forever. We pray that these blessings would come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen.